Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 13, 1888 Tour of England. What's workload management? The pattern of tours to England every two years was to continue in 1888, being the sixth tour since the 1878 side a decade before. However, the Melbourne Club, which had organised the 1886 tour, was in no financial position to do so, given their staggering losses suffered during Vernon's tour the previous summer. Into the breach strode Charles Beale, who had managed the successful 1888 tour. Once again, the tour would be a private arrangement amongst the players, with each sharing in the expected profits. Beale went to work, securing McDonnell, or what would be his fourth tour, as captain. McDonnell's experience and respect would help in controlling the players, which less experienced Scott had failed to do so in 1886, whilst his ability to build good relations with English administrators and professionals alike allowed him to repair much of the damage of the previous tour. McDonald was joined by Blackham and Bannerman, whilst Harry Boyle returned four years after the last test match he played in 1884 as the experienced heads in the side. They would be supported by Affie Jarvis, Sammy Jones and George Bonner as players with previous tour experience. Bonner, who had not played since the 1886 tour, had been living in England and would meet the team upon their arrival. Six newcomers would join these players on the tour. Harry Trott was making the first of four tours to England, whilst Jack Worrell and Jack Lyons had previous test experience in Australia. The other new batsman, Jack Edwards, was chosen mainly for his performances in Sydney club cricket. All these players were used to hard Australian pitches and would find adapting to wet English pitches more of a challenge. The final two newcomers were the new wonders of Australian cricket, Charles Turner and JJ Ferris. The two already had fearsome reputations for their exploits in the previous two Australian summers, with word filtering back by the English tourists who had faced them of what to expect. There was already comparisons being made before they stepped off the boat with the great Spotheth, comparisons which the two would more than live up to as the season progressed. Of even greater interest to many was those who had not made the tour. George Giffen refused to tour, in part because his younger brother Walter was not chosen. His loss was immense, given his outstanding performance on the previous tour with both bat and ball, and cost McDonald a bowler who could have rested Turner and Ferris. Harry Moses, who was compared by some to the skill of Billy Murdoch, also turned down the opportunity to tour. Moses, who had scored 297 for New South Wales against Victoria the previous season, as well as a century against the touring English, was in business trouble. The bank that he was director of was in financial difficulty, and Moses had lent a considerable amount of his family money to its operations. He chose to stay home to protect his investment. Billy Bruce and Hugh Trumbull were also approached, but declined offers. Most interestingly of all was the approaches to Fred Spotheth and Billy Murdoch. Both declined to tour due to their business interests and had made noises of their plan to move to England, a plan Spotheth followed through on. Murdoch will remain in Australia for the time being, although he still declined to even play first-class cricket, with his last such match being back in 1884. His time, though, would soon come again. The burden on Turner and Ferris to carry the bowling, already high, was increased upon arrival in England, when Sammy Jones came down with smallpox. This almost threatened the tour, as knowledge of such an infectious disease in the touring party could have led to large-scale cancellation of matches. Beale managed to keep it quiet, but it limited Jones's handy right-arm mediums to only cameo appearances on the tour. Harry Boyle, who had a success on previous tours, was past his best and would only play half the matches, as well as none of the tests. This left only Harry Trott's spin, which was erratic at the best of times, to support Turner and Ferris. This would leave them both with an incredible workload. Given the distances and communication barriers, there was little option to call in reinforcements from Australia. Beale searched England for an eligible player and found 21-year-old Sammy Woods, an all-rounder who was currently studying at Cambridge University and was representing that institution in first-class cricket. Woods, raised in Sydney, had been a star for Sydney Grammar School, where he once took seven wickets in consecutive deliveries. Woods accepted the offer to support the touring side, but was limited by his commitments to Cambridge and would only play in the matches against English representative sides, including the three tests. 
Many back home were sceptical of any chance of success on this tour, with many local pundits claiming that it was the weakest side to leave these shores. This was further compounded when the team lost all three of their warm-up matches against the colonies. However, early success buoyed hopes that this would be the side to turn Australian cricket's fortunes around. Playing their first game in May, the Australians won against a side featuring WG Grace and Walter Reid by five wickets, despite trailing on the first innings. Turner with nine and Ferris with 11 took all the wickets to fall, something which would become a common occurrence over the next five months. This led into a run of form where they won the next four games by an innings each. In the game against Surrey, Turner showed he was not just a superb bowler by scoring the first century of the tour to go with nine wickets for the match, whilst McDonnell also scored 100 in the innings defeat of Oxford University. It wasn't until their sixth match against Lancashire that the Australians tasted defeat, losing by 23 runs. A lean patch of form ensued before the Australians roared back with strong wins against the England 11 and the MCC. The Australians continued to have success leading up to the first Test match, which was to be played in July at Lords, winning 12 of the 17 matches before the Test commenced. Most of these wins were characterised by low scoring on wet pitches, with the weather in June and July being described in wisdom as detestable and indescribable. These sort of conditions were perfect for Ferris and Turner to weave their magic, and both were already on track to smash the records of first-class wickets in the season. The Australians had limited options from which to pick their side. Jones was incapacitated due to his smallpox, whilst Ball was never seriously considered for the test matches. The final choice came down to JJ Lyons against the newcomer Woods, with Woods' ability with the ball being preferred to the South Australian. He was joined as a test debutant by Trott and Edwards. Alan Steele was selected as the captain of an England side that included Grace, Barnes, Walter Reid, Briggs, Peel and Lohman. The English were forced into making two later changes, with Robert Abel replacing Shooter, who had suffered an injury the previous week, whilst Tim O'Brien took the place of Adderwell. A 14,000-strong crowd was attracted by the prospect of a good match between the sides. However, they would be disappointed at first, with the wet pitch delaying the start of play until after the scheduled lunch break. The toss occurred shortly before 3pm, with McDonald's successfully winning the toss and choosing to bat. The captain opened with Bannerman, whilst Lohman and Peel commenced the bowling. In Lohman's second over, Bannerman steered a ball to point to be caught by WG Grace, departing without a run being added. The doctor demonstrated such joy having taken the wicket that he threw the ball over his head all the way to third man. Debutante Trot came in at number three, but also failed to trouble the scorers, falling to Peel. Bonner joined with his captain at two for three. The popular man was cheered to the wicket, but nearly departed without adding a run, as he was badly dropped by Gunn at long on off Lohman. He was then nearly bowled. At the other end, McDonnell, who had done the bulk of the scoring, was also missed, this time at long off by Reid. The two managed to progress the score to 28, with Bonner having a couple more near misses before he was finally bowled by Lohman for six. Four runs later, McDonnell was also out, Corp off Peel for 22. Blackham and Woods then played steadily, dealing in ones and twos, taking the score beyond 40, leading to a bowling change with Briggs replacing Peel. An LBW appeal against Blackham was denied as the Australians 50 came up after an hour of play. Barnes and Seal tried, but it was Briggs who made the breakthrough, ending the partnership on 33 by dismissing Woods for 18. This saw Peel brought back on with success, dismissing the new batsman Turner for three. Edwards joined with Blackham, but the Victorian keeper failed to further add to his score, being bowled by Briggs for 22. Jarvis and Worrell could only manage 3 and 2 respectively, leaving the Australians 9 down for 82. At this point, last man Ferris joined Edwards, who was batting well on debut. Shortly after, Edwards was missed twice in the same ball as he was dropped by a bell at short leg. Attempting a run, he should have been dismissed, but Barnes failed to take the ball cleanly. The two were able to progress the score beyond 100 with death strokes for 2s and 3s. Finally, with the score at 116, Seal returned to the bowling crease to have Ferris caught behind for 14. Edwards remained undefeated on 21, with a 34-run partnership with Ferris having taken the Australians to a reasonable score given the nature of the pitch. Peel and Briggs have been the dominant bowlers, taking four and three wickets respectively. There were still 45 minutes left of play, with Grace and Abel heading to the wicket to face Turner and Ferris. The Terra nearly had Grace out LBW in his first over, but the umpire decided in favour of the batsman. 
It would be Ferris, the fiend, who would make the first incision when he stuck one past a Bell's bat to bowling for three. Another classic dismissal from half of the first great Australian bowling combination. John James Ferris was born in Sydney, New South Wales on the 21st of May, 1867. Known as JJ, he would debut for New South Wales as a 19-year-old against Shaw's Eleven in 1886. Here he played with the man who he would be forever associated with, Charles Turner. The bowling partnership bore fruit immediately, with the pair taking all 20 wickets to bowl New South Wales to a comfortable victory. 25 wickets in his first four first-class matches saw him make his test debut that summer, where, paired again with Turner, the two managed to bowl England out for 45 in the first innings, with Ferris completing his maiden test fifer in the second of what would be an eventual loss for the home side. A short, slight man, but with powerful shoulders, Ferris's left arm trajectory gave him an advantage, with his ability to swing the ball both ways a feature with the new ball. Like Turner, he also had an appetite for long spells, and was able to impart spin on the ball for when it stopped swinging. On his first tour to England, he had already demonstrated his reputation was well-deserved, and the first test would be another opportunity for his skills to be on full display. Barnes joined Grace, who was finding the conditions difficult. A few runs later, Grace stepped out of his crease with Blackham failing to complete the stumping opportunity. This near miss saw the English batsman retreat, trying to get through to stumps without further loss. Turnovers were sent down with only a single added before Barnes was finally compelled to hit a ball in the air, being caught at mid-on for three off Turner. Lohman was sent in at four, but on the stroke of stumps, he was trapped LBW by Turner. This left the English at a precarious 3 for 18, with Grace not out 10, almost 100 runs behind the increasingly large-looking Australian first inning score. The balance situation of the match drew almost 20,000 attendees for day two, and whilst the pitch had dried somewhat, this made it even more advantageous for the bowlers. Grace was joined the wicket by Reed. Ferris commenced, allowing Reed a single before nearly bowling Grace. Shortly thereafter, having made all four runs that morning, Reed was expertly stumped by Blackham off Turner. In the following over, Grace attempted to hit a ball off Ferris through the Everton side, but only managed a leading edge to mid-off, where Woods took an excellent catch. O'Brien didn't trouble the scorers, with a searing off-break from Turner clipping the top of his leg stump. England lost three for none to leave them at 6-22. Peel and Steele were now at the wicket, but the English captain was soon tempted from his crease by Turner, with Blacken pulling off another excellent stumping to give the terror his fifth of the innings. There was now a chance that England would even pass the meagre follow-on target of 37, as they still trailed this by 11 runs, with three wickets in hand. Peel brought England closer to this target with a four and an all-run three, but lost his partner at 35 when Ferris had gun caught behind. Newbats and Briggs avoided the follow-on with a couple of singles, allowing him to release the shackles somewhat as he followed up with a boundary off Turner. At this point, Woods replaced Ferris, and the two batsmen were subdued, only scoring four runs off eight overs. At 49, Peel called for a run, but Briggs failed to respond, leading to a run out for eight. Briggs then cut Woods for four before being bowled next ball, last out for 17, the highest score of the innings. Turner had taken five and Ferris three in England's first innings of 53, which gave the Australians a commanding, for the conditions, lead of 63. The pitch was still very difficult for batting as the Australians returned to the crease at 20-1 in the afternoon. Bannerman and McDonald opened, but the Australian captain was bowled off the last ball of the second over by Lohman. Peel followed this up in his next over by disturbing Bannerman's stumps and completing his pair, leaving the Australians at 2-1. for one. Trott and Bonner managed to take the score to 13, with the latter driving Lohman for four before both were out within two runs, one each to Lohman and Peel. Woods attempted to hit out, but only managed to sky a ball to grace a point, whilst Blackham ran himself out, followed by Edwards being caught for a first ball duck. All three batsmen fell with a score at 18. This brought Ferris in to join Turner. The two bowling allies rebuilt the innings, scoring quickly through powerful drives, including one by Turner off Lohman for four. The score quickly raced into the 40s before Peel made way for Briggs. This bowling change brought about immediate success, with Turner hitting a ball to grace a point only for the doctor to catch it at the second attempt. 
You put on 24 valuable runs with Ferris, and he'll take the Australians' lead past 100. Last two men, Worrell and Jarvis, both contributed four, as in combination with Ferris, the Australian score managed to grow to 60, till the final batsman was dismissed, with Ferris unbeaten on 20. Both Peel and Lomond had taken four wickets each, but the Australian lead of 123 was formidable, on a pitch that seemed tailor-made for Turner and Ferris. The English innings began at quarter to three. Despite the pitch, the English started strongly, with Grace in particular demonstrating his class, driving and cutting for multiple boundaries. His partner Rebel was more nervous, calling for many impossible runs that his more experienced partner wisely declined. 20 runs came up after 15 minutes of batting as Grace started to tempt the fielders more, almost being caught by Edwards at long off, with the ball grazing the fielder's hand before reaching the boundary. The breakthrough finally came with a score at 29, as Ferris managed to catch the edge of Rebel's bat, where Bonner finished the job at slip. One down two became two as Ferris tempted Grace into hitting a ball into the air to mid-off, where the catch was accepted by Bannerman. The great batsman had compiled 24, but once he was out, the wheels fell off the English innings. Turner now came into his own, bowling each of Peel, Reed, and O'Brien chiefly, leaving the English at 5 for 44. The Australian fielding played a big part in this, as the English were denied many runs for excellent efforts. Gunn and Steele managed to take the score to 55 before a sharp turning ball from Ferris clayed this off bail. From here, the last four wickets were full for only seven runs. Blackham made two excellent stumpings off Ferris, completing the left arm as Fifer, whilst Turner claimed the final wicket, fittingly caught by Ferris at short league. Both Turner and Ferris had bowled unchanged and taken five wickets in the second innings, with Turner having 10 and Ferris 8 for the match. The English were bowled out for 62, leading the Australians to claim a 61-run victory, their first in England since 1882, and the first in any Test match since Sydney in 1885, a run of seven losses in a row before this success. Despite being on the losing side, the English fans mobbed the ground and cheered heartily for the Australian players, with many claiming that this team was as good as the famous 1882 side. Almost a month would pass before the second test was to be played at the Oval. During this time, seven matches were played, with the Australians winning and losing two of them. The highlight was an extraordinary 17 wickets taken by Turner in an innings victory against an English 11. The workload on Turner and Ferris, already high, was starting to cause issues within the team. McDonald seemingly only felt comfortable if both were bowling with other bowling options such as Trot and Worrell not trusted. This workload was a major reason behind a dip in results, as Ferris in particular was starting to struggle. The Oval Test saw far better weather conditions than Lords had experienced a month before, with the pitch much firmer and better for batting. The Australians went in with an unchanged 11, whilst England made four, with Steele, O'Brien, Gunn and Sherwin making way for Ulliott and three debutants, John Shooter, Frank Sugg and Harry Wood, all three drawn from the local Surrey side. In the enforced absence of Steele, Grace took the English captaincy. McDonald was again successful in winning the toss and choosing to bat. The crowd packed the terraces, hoping for another good performance from both sides. Lomond and Peel commenced bowling to Bannerman and McDonald. Lomond started with the maiden before Peel drew the edge of the Australian captain, with Lomond taking a splendid catch at slip diving to his left. This dismissal without a run on the board would set the tone for the rest of the innings. Trot joined with Bannerman and the two progressed the score in singles before Trot began opening up with a couple of threes. This brought about a bowling change, with Peel being replaced by Briggs. This change almost brought immediate results, with his second overseeing the new bowler remove Trot's off stump for 13, with Bonner's middle stump getting the same treatment in Briggs following over. Both wickets fell at 22, with Edwards coming in to join Bannerman. At this point, the scoring rate tightened considerably, with Lohman bowling a sequence of 14 overs without conceding a run, whilst Briggs only conceded two runs in the same length of time. Finally, Edwards was able to get Lohman away for a three, followed by a cut for four in the next over. This brought about the second bowling change, with Barnes replacing Lohman. Again, the switch had an impact, with Bannerman edging the third ball from Barnes to Lohman at slip, who took another brilliant catch, this low, low down to his right. Bannerman departed for the 13, leading the Australians at precarious 4 for 40. Jarvis started confidently with a boundary, whilst the Australians had some luck when Edwards was missed by a bell at slip. This luck would turn sharply though, as Jarvis's leg stump was removed by Briggs at 49. 
Woods was run out without scoring shortly after, whilst Turner became Briggs' fourth bold victim on the stroke of lunch. This left the Australians at 7 for 50 at the break. Without a run being added, new batsman Blackham became both Briggs' fifth victim and the fifth duck of the innings, following the resumption of play. Number 10 Worrell made nine before being out to a splendid catch by Grace at mid-off. Ferris and Edwards managed to add 17 runs before Loman was brought back, ending the innings by bowling Edwards for 26. Ferris was not at 13 as the Australians ended their first innings at only 80 runs just before 3.30 in the afternoon. The Australians would have to make a good start to their bowling innings to have any chance of retrieving the situation. Turner obliged, having Grace caught at third man for one in the second over, followed by Ulyet but caught by Blackham for a duck in his third. However, at this point, the debutante shooter joined with Reed to steady the innings. Both hit boundaries, being more severe on Ferris, who wasn't able to keep up the same level of pressure as his partner. Ferris further compounded this by dropping a return chance from Reed. At this point, left armour was replaced by Trot. Not surprisingly, though, it would be Turner who would make the breakthrough, causing Shooter to cut a ball onto his stumps for 28. Reed followed soon after, with Turner knocking his off stump out of the ground for 18. This is the English at 4 for 53, with Barnes arriving to join a bell. At this point, there was still a chance of Australia limiting the damage. However, Trot's bowling could not contain either batsman, with both the bell and Barnes hitting him for two boundaries apiece. This brought the return of Ferris, but the run rate continued to increase. Turner, who had been miserly to this point, was hit for two boundaries and an over as the English approached 100, leading to him being replaced by Woods. This had no effect at slowing the scoring, with the two batsmen scoring it over a run per minute. At 122, Turner returned refreshed and started to restrict the scoring somewhat, but no bowler was able to create a chance for the two now well-set batsmen. Worrell was tried, but his first two balls went for seven, as Barnes brought up his 50. The 100-run partnership was raised at 6 o'clock in the evening, which was soon after followed by a Bell's own 50. Finally, with a score on 165, Turner struck, having Barnes caught at slip. He did eight fours in his 62 and had taken the game away from the Australians. Sugg joined a bell and the two managed to get the English through to stumps without further loss, although Sugg was missed by McDonald's slip off Ferris just before the close. England finished the day 105 runs ahead of the Australians, still with five wickets in hand. 18,000 attended the second day's play, hoping to see the home side improve on their dominant position. A bell rewarded them by hitting the first ball of the day for four. Shortly after, Sugg was badly missed by Bonner at slip. Abel then hit a ball into the offside and set off for a run, but Trot, with swiftness, collected the ball and threw down the stumps, ending Abel's innings on 70. He hit nine boundaries and not given a chance to the Australians prior to his dismissal. Peel replaced him, while Sugg started to show some quality, hitting Woods thrice to the boundary, although the last one just evaded Worrell at slip. Peel quietly built his innings and the 50 partnership was raised before Sugg's luck finally ran out, being bowled leg stump for 31 by Turner. Woods then yorked new batsman Briggs for a duck in the next over, bringing Lohman to the crease. Lohman began by hitting two off drives to four off Woods, but lost Peel at 259 when Woods knocked his middle stump out of the ground. This left England nine down with only the keeper Wood to partner Lohman. Lohman decided that his best option was to attack. With Wood providing solid support, Lohman targeted the bowling, hitting Turner for three boundaries in two overs, including one into the pavilion to warm applause. Two more boundaries in an over off Turner saw the score go past 300, then hit Ferris to three boundaries in a single over, bringing up his 50. The score was raised to 317 before Ferris tempted Wood into hitting a catch to Bannerman at mid-off, ending the 58-run partnership. Lohman was left undefeated on 62 in only 55 minutes, with 10 boundaries entertaining the large crowd. Turner was a pick of the bowlers with six wickets, but Lohman's assault had ruined his figures, going for 112 runs in 60 overs. The Australians trailed by 237 runs, with defeat almost assured. The 1880 Australians had been in a similar position in their game, but through Murdoch's 153, had at least made England batter game. Opening the innings, McDonald looked set to repeat his predecessor's efforts. With Bannerman stonewalling away, McDonald looked to score quickly, taking both Lohman and Briggs for boundaries, and seeing Australia through to lunch without loss on 18. Following the break, Peel and Barnes recommenced the bowling. 
McDonald continued to dominate the scoring, but was badly missed by Lohman off Peel. However, he could not capitalise as he played a ball onto his stumps to be out for 32. This began a collapse where a further three wickets were lost for 11 runs, with Trott, Bonner and Edwards all falling for single figures. At 4 for 45, Ferris joined Bannerman, who had batted for over an hour for four runs. Ferris hit a boundary and scored quickly, but was sharply run out for 16. Bannerman's vigil was then ended without a further run added, out for five after 70 minutes of obdurate defence. This left the Australians at 6 for 62. Woods and Turner then combined, with Woods being missed at point by Reid, whilst Turner should have been run out. Woods was soon after out for seven, caught off Barnes. Jarvis joined Turner and both hit boundaries before Jarvis was eight out at 89. Blacken made four before becoming Barnes' fifth victim of the innings, whilst Turner was last out to Peel, his fourth, with the score at even 100. The crowd rushed the ground and cheered the home side, who had completed an emphatic victory by an innings at 137 runs, tying the Test Series at 1-0. The failing batting and the reliance on Turner and Ferris was now hurting the Australians. They lost three matches in a row following the second Test, with no Australian batsmen passing 50 in these matches. The signing Test will be played in Manchester, with the Australians making one change with Lions coming in for Jarvis. England once again selected Steele, but he was unable to accept the invitation. Piling returned to keep Wicken in place of Wood, whilst Gunn was selected in place of Shooter. The ground had suffered heavy rainfall, and the pitch was saturated. As this would dry as the day went on, the best time to bat would be at the beginning of play, with the toss having a big impact on the result. McDonald called incorrectly, and Grace had no hesitation in choosing to bat, opening with himself and Abel. Ferris and Turner commenced the bowling and gave nothing away, with no runs scored in the first 12 minutes of play. At this point, Abel was bowled by Turner off the last ball of an over. Gray scored six runs off the next Ferris over before Turner struck with the first ball all your face, clean bowling the Yorkshireman. Reid walked in on the hat-trick ball and negotiated well, hitting it to the square leg boundary for four. From here, the English batsman gained the ascendancy, with the next 40 minutes producing 36 runs. Grace was especially aggressive, hitting Turner into the crowd whilst also taking Ferris for two boundaries. He was lucky to survive a run-out chance, just making his ground from an excellent bonnet throw from long on. Woods was tried in place of Ferris, but both batsmen took him for a boundary. A brief shower interrupted the play, but not Grace's momentum, as he took 10 runs off Woods in an over. The partnership was finally broken with a score at 58, as Turner beat the inside edge of Reed's bat to remove the bails. A run later, Grace launched Turner towards Longon. Bonham misjudged the catch at first, but made use of his great height to catch it high in his right hand on the boundary, dismissing Grace to 38 and leaving England at 4 for 59. Sugan Barnes provided the solid partnership that then took the English to lunch on 87. A shower of rain fell during the break, but did not delay the start of play. Sug commenced by driving Turner twice to the boundary, but his off stump removed by Woods with the score on 96. Some sharp running took the score past 100 as Gunn joined Barnes, with the reintroduction of Ferris leading to dismissal of the latter for 24. Gunn soon after drove Turner for four before being trapped leg before by the Terror, whilst Peel made 11 before falling in the same fashion to Ferris. Lohman then ran himself out for a duck, leaving the English at 9 for 136. However, the last wicket partnership frustrated the Australians, with Briggs and Piling both hitting out, taking the score onto 172 before Woods had Piling well caught at Longon by Bonner, with Briggs left 22 not out. Turner was a standout bowler, with 5 for 86 off 55 overs, his fourth five-wicket haul of the Tests in only four bowling innings, whilst Woods and Ferris both contributed with two apiece. The Australian innings started at 5 o'clock, with Bannerman and McDonald commencing against Peel and Lohman. McDonald started with a couple of streaky shots into the offside, but then seemed to hit his stride with two consecutive boundaries. However, his adventurous play was his downfall, skying a ball to mid-off off Peel to be out for 15. Trot replaced him, but scurried back to the pavilion soon after as a shower came across the ground. After 20 minutes, the players returned. 
Trot hit two falls into the offside, but was lucky to survive a trot catch by a bell. However, on the stroke of stumps, Bannerman, who had been batting in his usual stoic style, had his leg stump removed by Peel for one. With Trot 14 not out, the Australians went to stumps on two for 32. Bonner joined Trot at the beginning of day two, with the Australians still 140 runs behind. The drying wicket was becoming even more treacherous. Five maidens started the day before Trot got Loman away for three. The next over from Peel saw Trot attempted from his crease, only for piling to enact a smart stumping. In Peel's next over, Edwards and Turner were bowled by consecutive deliveries, completing the slow left arm as five wicket haul. Wood survived the hat-trick ball, but ran out his partner Bonner, calling for a run that was not there, with Elliot throwing down the stumps from mid-on. Woods then fell to Briggs from a skied ball well caught by Reid running in from long off. This left the Australians at 7 for 45. Blackham and Lyons revived the innings somewhat, with both finding the boundary. Blackham had a let-off on 7 when he was dropped at point, but the two managed to take the score to 81 and only 12 runs short of avoiding the follow-on. At this point, the innings capitulated, with the last three wickets all falling without a run being added. Lyman claimed one, whilst Peel claimed a further two to finish the innings with the superb figures of 7 for 31. With the pitch so treacherous, there was little doubt the English would enforce the follow-on, which they did. The second inning started the way the first one had finished, with Bannerman popping Peel's first ball to WG Grace at short mid-off. The first ball of Lomans opening over saw McDonald depart from a ball that kept low and took out the Australian captain's leg stump. The first run came from a leg bye to Bonner, but he also fell for a duck when he hit a simple catch to Grace at mid-off. Blackham joined Trot and managed to score five before a further three wickets fell with a score on seven. Blackham, Trot and Woods all being dismissed, with Lomans claiming two and Peel one. And this happened in eight madcap overs, with the Australians now at the risk of posting the lowest ever test score. Complete embarrassment was avoided due to the partnership between Turner and Lyons. Lyons, who was missed without having scored by Reid at point, hit the next ball for four, whilst Turner took Lohman for two leg-side boundaries. The two put on 30 runs in less than 15 minutes of play. This saw the replacement of Lohman by Briggs, with no immediate impact. The two batsmen took the score past 50 and put on 48 runs before Briggs managed to rattle Turner's stumps, dismissing him for 26, with four boundaries. Edwards then fell to Peel one run later, with Grace taking another splendid catch just inches off the ground, his third of the innings. Ferris and Lyons took the score onto 70, but both fell on that score, and innings and the match. Lyons had top scored in both innings, with his 32 in the second innings the equal top score by any Australian in the test matches, suggesting that he should have been given an opportunity earlier. Peel had added four wickets to the 70 he took in the first innings, leaving him with match figures of 11 for 68 in the English victory by an innings and 21 runs. This gave the English a series 2-1, which was their seventh consecutive one going by all the way back to 1882-83. The Australians had six matches to go on their tour before it ended in late September, winning three and losing three. This left their tour results as a respectable 18 wins for 37 matches, a superior win rate to the previous tour. The standouts were Turner and Ferris. Turner took an extraordinary 283 wickets, the most ever taken in a first-class season, including 35ers and 12 10-wicket matches. Ferris played second fiddle, but still took 199 with 17 fives and three 10 wicket matches. By comparison, the great English bowler Lohman took 253 wickets across the season. The two had an insanely high workload, bowling 75% of the deliveries and taking 80% of the wickets. The next best to the Australians was Trot, who managed 43 wickets. The lack of bowling support that could have rested the Terror and the Fiend arguably limited their effectiveness in the test matches. It should be noted that at the same time that the third test was on, that the Demon Spotheth, who had travelled to England for his business commitments, played in the match against a team led by Lord Harris, taking 11 wickets to the match. The what-if of Spotheth joining with the two great bowlers could have led to a far different result. The biggest issue for the Australians, though, was the batting. The top score in the test by any Australian batter was only 32, and with most innings only lasting a short time, and neither gave Turner or Ferris much to bowl to, or provide them with enough time to rest to recover their stamina. 
Bonner failed to reach double figures in any of his six innings, whilst experienced players like McDonnell, Badman, and Blackham all failed to make meaningful contributions. They could be excused, however, due to the often wet nature of the pitches, which so helped the bowlers and made batting in some cases almost impossible. The 1882 tour would be the end of the road of tests for both Bonner and McDonnell. Bonner had been a larger-than-life figure and a big draw card due to his powerful exploits, but lacked the consistency of many of his contemporaries, only scoring one century in two fifties in tests, despite playing in 17 of them. He will retire from first-class cricket in 1891, become a produce buyer, dying in orange in 1912 of a heart attack at the age of 57. McDonnell had far more of an impact as a test cricketer, being the first batsman to score three test hundreds, a mark no Australian had passed at the time of his last test. His captaincy had mixed results on the field, but was well-respected off it. He would play in New South Wales until 1892, before moving to Queensland, where he played two seasons for that state. He would die young at the age of 35 in 1896. Sammy Woods, who had filled in for the Australians during the test matches, would go on to play three tests for England in 1896 against South Africa. The 1888 tour was one of highs and lows, although ultimately unsuccessful. The exploits of Turner and Ferris would go down in history, but they could not be relied upon to win games when the batting was so weak. The Australians were in desperate need of new blood to reinvigorate their performances. The next tour in 1819 would, however, see the final return of one of the old guard for one last shot at glory. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.